Hello there, space fans, and welcome to the first episode of Last Week in Space for the year 2020. We've successfully made another revolution around the sun. Do we call it a revolution, Chris? A and I am here with Chris Jebhart, the assisting managing editor of nasaspaceflight.com, Friends of Supercluster. And we're happy to be at Cape Canaveral right now, just fresh off a SpaceX launch, the first American launch of the year. First global launch of the year. The first global launch of the year and the first Space Force launch. Yes. Sort of, right? Officially, yes. Officially. Officially, okay. Yes, yes. So Chris and I and a bunch of our colleagues were at the Causeway for the launch. We joined SpaceX earlier in the day to place our pad cameras and do a little preview, visit the rocket. And then we all joined SpaceX to drive onto Cape Canaveral Air Force Station for the launch. And I think we got out there about an hour before. There was not a single cloud in the sky. Not one. Yeah. It was clear, beautiful skies. It was so crisp and clear. It was, like, yeah, it was really clear out there. Like it that, was, that was the thing about it. Not only could you very clearly see the second stage ignition, which even at night sometimes is a little hard to see even right. on cloudless nights in Florida, we could follow it with the naked eye. Mm -hmm. I mean, until it disappeared below the horizon while it was still firing. Like, I, I have to go back. We saw the years to, like, for like, to the one. shuttle program yeah. when there were three of those liquid mm -hmm. engines. Like to when you could follow it to the horizon, it was amazing. Now we saw. Okay, so we saw the launch was beautiful. The rocket lifted off on its fourth flight, I should say. Second, the time second time booster, in history. Right, yeah, right. second time in history, a, a Falcon Nine has flown on a fourth mission. Like Chris said, we had a beautiful view of the launch. And after liftoff, obviously, we're all waiting for, you know, Miko and then separation and then the relight of the engines. Right. Now, we saw that with the naked eye and yeah. way in the distance. Way in the distance. The landing burn is what you're referring mm, landing to. Landing burn, yes. yes. Yeah. And it, it's, it's amazing to think that at that point, that thing is like 530 kilometers northeast of the Cape. Right. And we can see it. The fire is, eye. yeah, it's that hot. Yeah. It's burning that hot. And it's just with the combination of the clear skies, it just looks like a fireball in the distance. Yeah. How far out was the drone ship? 630 kilometers. Okay. That's how much for, how, what does that mean for Americans that don't believe in the metric system? Mm, I can figure that out. <laughs> Do we have an approximation? <laughs> well, while Chris There's does that, yeah, there you go. While Chris <laughs> does that, I wanted to say, like we mentioned earlier, this was sort of the first Space Force launch. We had the general of the 45th, the new general, come out and give a statement afterwards. And shout out to Jim Williams, who was a listener of the Supercluster podcast, who actually was out there with us, guiding us along with SpaceX for this mission. And I just, the emotions were, were it was a fun launch. It was like a dozen of us out there. There was a very skeletal press pool. Yeah, it was, it was a fun launch. You know, it was, you know, the first launch globally for right. the year. And... I think a lot of us had come off of a, a very busy and tiring year in 2019 that ended very late in the year for us too, yeah. with, with Starliner on the 20th through the 22nd right. of, of December. So I know a lot of us, myself included, really enjoyed that break mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that we got. But it was also fun to kick it off with, with Starlink, right, which is one that we're very familiar with. They're going to get very, very routine here. They're already two weeks. starting to become routine, even though it's only the third, second operational third Starlink. Yeah, launch. and I think yeah. the reason they're starting to become routine for us is because while this was only the, the second operational one, I think we're five overall in True. for accreditation. Right. And and they are really planning, you know, rapid fire every two weeks. There's going to be a batch of Starlinks. And I think I read somewhere, didn't Gwen say somewhere this week that they build seven Starlinks a day? Right. 
Yeah. That's so what, that's the metric I heard. Yeah. Yeah. Seven starlings a day at their production facility outside of Seattle mm. in Washington. So you, you can get a sense of how quickly they're firing them out. And just to circle back on this mission and project, Starlink is a broadband satellite project that is trying to fill this gap of unavailable internet around the world. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, their their goal is to service the underserved areas mm-hmm. and and the places that don't have the infrastructure to to build out Wi-Fi and internet systems. And you know, primarily that would be you know some of the very rural areas across the globe, mm-hmm. um, even here in the states. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind of specifically why I wasn't yeah. naming a country, <laughs> yeah, yeah, continent, yeah. Um, because it it really is is everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I, actually, I just drove from Kansas City, Missouri, mm-hmm. to Daytona Beach in your new Tesla. And my new Tesla. Yes, I'm very excited about that. <laughs> Over a year of saving went into that. Yeah. <laughs> but there were there were places even along that drive once you got out of the major cities in the US that didn't have that kind of connectivity. Right. And so these are the types of areas that Starlink is supposed to serve, as well as those of us who live in cities who who just want that option. And let me add a personal note to this. When I'm down here at Cape, I either stay at a friend's house who we're taping at right now, or I'm at my parents who live 20 minutes from Disney World and a pretty large metropolitan area, Orlando, downtown Orlando is close by. Now, there is a monopoly. I'm not going to mention the companies here, but there's a monopoly on internet service. Like we only have the one or two options. They're both horrible. And that's actually the case for much of Central Florida. And it's actually the case for much of, I, I mean, I can't speak for other places, but mm. I know that's very much true across the United States. Yes. That you only have one or two. It's the same with power companies. Right. Where somehow that's not a monopoly to only have a single power company. Mm-hmm. And I know in Florida, to keep with SpaceX and, and Tesla right. here, there is a huge push legislatively in Florida to, and it's actually illegal to disconnect from the power grid. So you can have, whether it's Tesla or another system mm-hmm. out there, you can have a solar system on your house. It can be completely. And that, that will power your house completely. But mm-hmm. you still have to pay the power company $10 a month to, quote, maintain the account. And their whole reason for that is, well, it's not fair to everyone else that you can afford to disconnect. Oh, I see. Now, where's the capitalism? (laughs) That's late stage capitalism. Yes. (laughs) And Starlink. So Elon has already used his phone using internet broadcasted from a Starlink satellite. This, I think, was a month ago. He sent a tweet. He sent a tweet. That's how we know. Yes. So this level of internet that's going to be broadcast from these satellites is video game level broadcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. it's, it's, It's in a lot of ways better in terms of upload download mm-hmm. speed than than what you have yeah. at your house right now and the relatively good thing about it is that you can take that that terminal that user access terminal mm-hmm. with you that's amazing right like it's, in your car in at work at well ex- exactly. kennedy space center well yeah <laughs> i mean like they've described it as like this pizza box shaped thing so right. i'm going to be interested to see what it actually looks like and how portable it is mm-hmm. but but there's that element of being able to move but what i'm more excited about in terms of Starlink and the service availability that it will provide is how it will enable and change disaster relief and disaster management. You know, we just in the United States had the earthquake in Puerto Rico, right. which only one person lost their life. Yeah. And, and I, I, We're I, grateful I don't want to say that, thankful yeah. because someone did lose their life, but that could have been a far, far worse, worse situation. situation. And when you think mm-hmm. of the tectonic activity around the world, Starlink if it runs off a battery, if you have it hooked up to, to solar, if you have mm. it hooked up to a battery backup, that is something that can allow you to communicate in the minutes after a natural disaster like that. Mm-hmm. 
And that is something and that the world during hurricanes, during all these other natural disasters that we have, this is something that could be huge for that. Now, Chris is talking about a situation in Puerto Rico and there have been situations around the world, even they're happening rapidly and an increased cadence where extreme storms, natural disasters are just leaving people without communication. Mm-hmm. And that's communication in 2020 is water. You know what I mean? You need it. We need it to survive. Now, Chris and I are talking about this as if it's some distant thing. We are right now at in the Space Coast. We are in one of the more dangerous hurricane alleys in the world. And hurricanes have had an effect on Kennedy Space Center, on the space program, on our lives. How many times have you and I had to evacuate or worry about our families or run back to a Florida? In you the and last, I ha- in you the last three right. years, right. I've had to evacuate three times. Yeah. And you and I have actually had to come to Florida. I remember one yes, time. there was one time where I was actually doing an, a mentorship mm-hmm. in California, in Los right. Angeles, mm-hmm. and had to fly back to evacuate yeah. my family. And same with me, because yeah. my parents were parents both just sick, yes, yeah, yes. sick at the time. And we both had to come fly in the opposite direction to deal with this. And I was just thinking about the launches that we've had right before a storm, like OTV-5? Yes, the Air space Force's plane. little mini space plane, mm-hmm. the X-37B, yeah, that launched like the last possible day. Was it, was, it, was, it was Irma, and <clears throat> right before launch, the governor declared a state of emergency. Yeah, because yeah. I remember that was the day I was flying back right. from California, and I was watching the launch on my phone mm-hmm. at LAX, mm-hmm. knowing that if a scr- if they scrubbed for any reason, it was a detank and haul that sucker back into the hip right. and batten down the hatches. Exactly. You know? And there was damage from that storm. A well, lot, not no, as much, not, but a little bit. Well, not as much, but I believe that was the one that Kennedy was shut down. Like Kennedy and Cape Canaveral Air Force Station were shut down for over a week because a week, of a yeah. water main break, mm-hmm. not because they didn't have power. Right. But a water main break, like our, our infrastructure is fragile here. Let's make no mistake. It about is. That. And, yeah. uh, and I think we need to start addressing, you know, face to face that climate change is having an impact on the future of Kennedy. That, well, that and I mean, you know, I think this is a good segue to sort of talk about how some of the satellites that we don't normally talk about after they've launched a lot of the Earth observation mm-hmm. satellites, not just assisting in weather forecasting, although there's been an interesting decrease in the U.S.'s ability to properly forecast hurricanes right. and an increase in Europe's ability to do that mm-hmm. when they don't even get hit with them. <laughs> right. It's worth mentioning, too, the satellites that right now are greatly aiding the, the firefighting efforts in Australia. Right. I mean, that is a continent that is on fire. Literally. Uh, and, and terrifyingly so. And shout out to any of our listeners or readers who are over in Australia. I know we have a few. Our hearts are with you when we're watching. And we hope you're safe. Yeah. You know. It's it's really, you know, I feel like Chris and I, we've been working in space for a while. And for me personally, and I know Chris feels this way too, space is supposed to improve our daily lives on this planet. And we're supposed to use this technology for the mainstream, mm-hmm. for everyone space is for everyone that's a motto around here motto among our friends but i think and chris i wanted to throw back to an article you did for nasaspacefight.com it was about disaster management in puerto rico yes can you tell us yeah can you just tell us a little bit about i want to connect how satellites do help even though it's not starlink but how do satellites help with disaster management yeah 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 and we'll put the link up Mm. yeah yeah we do that so you can read the article it was a fascinating conversation i had with the ceo of iridium Mm -hmm. this was a specifically about how the iridium constellation was integral and vital in the aftermath of hurricane maria when it hit puerto rico a devastating 17 i believe was hurricane maria it was it was late yeah and i mean hurricane maria to start with knocked out 99 percent of that island's power grid not not 
power, mm, power grid. the grid mm-hmm. was 99% of that grid was destroyed. Cell towers were, were completely wiped off the map. There was no ability for people to communicate in the ways that we that we normally do and that we rely on even for disaster management, right? Mm-hmm. Walkie-talkies rely on the cellular network. Mm-hmm. So these space-based telecommunication companies, specifically Iridium, were on the island beforehand, but primarily for scientists, mm-hmm. right? In remote areas of the Puerto Rican wilderness. And afterward, they saw an incredible spike, like a spike that they, even they at Iridium were not- They weren't expecting that. Expecting mm-hmm. because it was literally only satellite phones and satellite communication that, that the island could use. It was the only it, thing it that had, was operable. It had yeah. nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't just for the initial disaster response. It, it provided the ability that walkie-talkie push-to-talk communication system mm-hmm. for people going neighborhood by neighborhood, home by home, to see if people were alive right. or dead or what they needed and you know, helping people clear neighborhoods and then helping in some cases some some heartwarming cases you know helping families that had been separated when bridges collapsed when Mm -hmm. you know with all the flooding that that took place on the island helping them get in contact with loved ones and just hear the voice of a loved one and know they were okay i mean that's the type of thing we're talking about here in in disaster response that space based communication can enable and I want to point out that it was SpaceX that launched Iridium's new constellation. Yes, it was. Yeah. Communication in 2020 is like water. We need it. I think that you know, Starlink is one one of the options that is coming. That's that, right. It's, it's not, not just one. it's not right. just Starlink. We have OneWeb. We have Boeing exploring constellation satellite. And Amazon. Amazon Blue Amazon slash Blue Origin. Slash I want to say. Yes. So everyone is looking at this business. We had Mike Sheets on the show last month to talk about business in space. It's a great episode. Yeah, and it's a billion dollar market. And oh, yeah. that's what SpaceX sees. And that's why they want to tap into it to finance Mars. Oh yeah, because this is how they're financing yes. Starship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. What is the new number of how many they're aiming for? I believe that's still slightly ambiguous. It's ambiguous. Um, yeah, I, I believe twelve thousand is still the. That's like the firmest number, and that's what we have on Supercluster in our launch tracker. We have about twelve thousand, and we're not going to update that until we have a firm like hold on what that number will be. Right. And and the reason we say it's not necessarily firm Mm. is because SpaceX did update their application with the FAA and the Mm. FCC, the Federal Aviation Administration and the Federal Communications Commission here in the United States for up to Mm -hmm. 42,000 Starlings. Right. But the important thing to note with that is that doesn't mean they will launch. It right. means they have federal approval they to have launch approval. that many. Right. And a lot of that has to do with their for, you know, looking forward mm-hmm. into what the demand might be. Because if the demand for that Starlink system is high enough, they will need to put more satellites up to maintain the throughput capability and the upload and download speeds that we're going to be paying for and relying on right. with those types of services. So they're basically hedging a bet. Like they're like, mm-hmm. okay, we should get this approved Mm -hmm. just in case 10 years from now we need to launch more infrastructure. Because while this is primarily talked about in as a commercial venture mm-hmm. for for the public, right? The military is also looking at Starlink, and they they have said publicly that mm-hmm. they've tested, secured, and encrypted military communications yes. through the Starlink system as well. That's all they said. Mm-hmm. Of course, the military will not say whether or not that was successful because they don't want us to right. know about it. 
but you know you can sort of see the snowballing effect now and of course and this will be true with OneWeb this will be true with a Canadian version of this that's that's under that, that's under build right now as well and for Amazon is that people will be skeptical of it and rightfully so they'll be skeptical of it until they start launching. Right. And then once they start launching, it becomes a, oh boy, mm-hmm. we need to get on that bandwagon. Right. How do we do that? And it just seems like SpaceX has a ton of work ahead of them when it comes to marketing because they're sort of creating a consumer product now. Well, they are. Right. And with this launch Monday of mm-hmm. the newest batch of 60 Starlink satellites, SpaceX actually became the largest satellite operator in the world. In the world, yeah. When measured by number of active satellites in orbit, Mm -hmm. um, prior to this, Planet Labs had 150. Right. They were the leader, but with this round of Starlinks, SpaceX reaches 180. 180, wow. So they have 180 active satellites in orbit. So they are now... So what happened to the two tester ones from last year? Uh, They're still up. So we have 182, but those two are experimental, right? I believe that's how you get to 80, to 180. With the two. two. If you hear that sound in the background, we are at Chelsea Partridge's house. She is a test engineer on the Artemis program. We would like to thank her for using her real estate over here. But she is a keeper of a million different plants. There's plants out there from like Jurassic era. And she's got like a cat, two dogs, and 50 birds. It's basically a zoo. There's aquariums everywhere. We're just trying to set the stage here. We're 18 minutes from Kennedy Space Center in this beautiful home. So thank you, Chelsea, for letting us use your space. We have used it before. The bird's really liking it. Yeah, the bird wants to be on the podcast. But So Chris, so we're past this first launch, this first hump. Mm-hmm. You and I are heading right into in-flight abort. Yes. Before, and before we talk about that, mm-hmm. we should probably talk about, because you said we're past the first one. We're past the first one in the U.S. In the U.S., we're yes. We're past the first two globally. Mm-hmm. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the first two globally were SpaceX on the 6th uh-huh. and China on the 7th. Of course. Now, China's launch on the 7th was a classified military satellite, uh-huh. so we have no idea what it was. No idea that it was coming. <laughs> Until yeah. about three days before. Nice. <laughs> yes, this is the joy of, of, yeah. of China's space program. Right. This year, China plans to launch 40 times. Right. This year, out of Florida alone... They are expecting 48 launches off the Eastern Range from Florida. So just Florida, just China, mm-hmm. that's 88 missions, 88 orbital launches. For comparison, globally in 2019, the world did 103 <laughs> orbital launch attempts. Right. We are talking about one nation mm-hmm. and then another location, two nations, mm-hmm. right? All of China doing 40 and just one location in the United Cape. States doing 48, Cape right. Canaveral and the Kennedy Space Center mm-hmm. used interchangeably here right. for this purpose. That does not count the Vandenberg Air Force Base missions, the Wallops flights from the United States, Kodiak Island. It doesn't count Starship in Texas. It doesn't count Blue Origin and... Virgin Galactic Virgin. suborbital right. commercial launches that should start. It doesn't count Europe, Japan, India, or Russia. So we're looking at the largest amount of launches in 2020 ever, globally? I don't, I don't know about ever. But we should look into it. But we'll we, look into it. <laughs> but, but, you know, this is going to be an extremely busy year. Mm-hmm. So we're past the first two. First two now. And it's the 8th of January. And it's and it's Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, so it's Wednesday at around 3 p.m. here, and we're at Cape. And as of now, 
SpaceX in-flight abort is scheduled for the 18th. Yes, January okay. 18th, 8 a.m. Eastern, mm, okay. which is 1300 UTC. Right. For those of you who know your time zone conversion better from UTC. And it's a four-hour launch window. So that'll be from 8 a.m. to noon? To noon, okay. yes. Or 1300 to 1700 okay. UTC Okay, is, is the window mm-hmm. on the 18th. And in-flight abort is going to be... It's going to be amazing. But more importantly than amazing, because that's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. It's the last major hurdle for SpaceX before they begin flying crew. Right. And which is pretty, is, we're, we're at the, this is, you know, we're at the finish line. We're getting close to that finish yeah. line. And, yeah. Uh, you know, in-flight abort, we'll, we'll be talking about that more in more depth on, on it. Oh yeah. We'll, podcast. we'll do a whole ep- episode preview for this next week, but just on the super cluster front, we're completing an in-flight abort poster which will be a launch viewing guide for the folks who are coming down to Florida for it. And we will also make it available in our shop so you can get one. I'll be around Cape for the next two weeks, handing them out. So what always seems to happen when we're recording is news will break. Is news will yeah. break. Um, what do we got here? Chris? So we were, I, well, I was going to segue into Boeing, but this is a good segue yeah, yeah, into yeah, yeah, Boeing yeah. because we should talk a little bit about the post that was brought up about Starlink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. So, but there are two Boeing things to talk about right now. So really quick, the core stage for the SLS rocket built by Boeing rolled out to the Pegasus Barge at the Michoud Assembly Facility in Louisiana. Awesome. For transport to the Stennis Space Center in preparation for its fueling test. Mm-hmm. The first time the stage will be fueled. Right. And the eight and a half minute hot fire, full duration hot fire of its that's four exciting. space shuttle main engines. So that's incredibly exciting. Good progress from Boeing. On the other Boeing front, yesterday we had a blog post mm-hmm. from NASA detailing where they were in the investigation for Starliner's not as planned orbital flight test that took place in December. That mission launched on the 20th. It was supposed to be an eight-day voyage to the International Space Station. It ended up being only a two-day mission and coming nowhere close to the International Space Station. As everyone is aware. (laughs) Yes. And basically, NASA said yesterday that they have approved and formed an independent commission, so not NASA, not Boeing, but an independent commission to look into the cause mm-hmm. of this timing issue. If there was anything systemic that comes from it that really needs to be fixed and to provide recommendations. Mm-hmm. I think we can all agree that's very good. Independent yeah, investigation need, of this is is key. I mean, when you're talking about human safety yes. and space flight, you, we, there can't be anything overlooked. Right. It has, everything has to be detailed. And, yeah. and even though it was da- the seriousness of it was downplayed by mm-hmm. NASA and, and Boeing, it was in fairness, Mm -hmm. a a, a serious failure. Mm -hmm. And and serious doesn't mean that it would have put the crew in danger, but serious means it was, it was a significant malfunction. It was supposed to reach the space station. It did not. (laughs) But there were some interesting takeaways and some interesting things in this blog post. Most notably, this independent inquiry is apparently only allowed to investigate for two months. The language they use in the blog post was that after a two month investigation, they will present their findings. Seems a little weird to be limiting an investigation <laughs> to two months instead of letting it play out naturally. I um, hate to bring up the double standard here again, but let's talk about CRS seven and Amo six <laughs> and how much well, months went into looking into that. Well, a much you know? more direct comparison would right. be the, the Crew Dragon Crew Dragon anomaly. Yes. Yeah. So why NASA appears to want to be limiting the scope in terms of timing of that investigation? Mm-hmm. I think they're going to have to answer that question. 
And they also said that in the next few weeks, we will know if NASA will force Boeing to refly the orbital flight test in its uncrewed configuration or mm-hmm. whether NASA will go, eh, good enough and say, we really don't care about the software issue. We're mm-hmm. to, we'll just proceed to crew flight. Interestingly, they seem to indicate that they will make the decision on that before the independent inquiries report comes out because they said it would be in the next few weeks that right. they would be making that decision, but the inquiry will last two months. Oh. So how they're going to do that is... That is very confusing to me. Confusing. NASA also confirmed that per the contract they signed with Boeing, that Boeing presented to them as mm-hmm. what they wanted the contractual elements to be, OFT contractually had to make it to the International Space Station right. in order for the major objectives of that mission to be completed. There was a misdirect at the press conference, It's in my opinion, where we said, hey... It doesn't, it weren't you guys supposed to make it to the space station? And they were like, well, not really. And then I went home. I was like, no, yeah, you but, were. But yeah. then a lot of people pointed yeah. out, yeah. And, and they actually asked the administrator this mm-hmm. after Starliner landed and someone in the media did. I, and I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not being quite, I really don't remember. We don't remember. Was, yeah, yeah. It was um, a lot, it was a lot of chaos and confusion that but day. But they did point out to the administrator that it was part of the contract. It was. And, and, and Jim was like, the was like, oh, well, uh, I'll need to go look at that. Yeah, I need to go look that up. Well, yeah. they confirmed in this press release that it was a contractual it was. point. It did not happen. Mm-hmm. So it will be interesting to see how they'll justify not allowing a contract to be fulfilled before proceeding forward. And that's if they don't want a reflight of OFT. Right. Also, it said in there that, you know, part of OFT would be verifying and validating all the data to prove that Starliner could do a whole bunch of things, which it did prove. It was able to prove quite a bit. It did. Right. It, it, there was mission objectives that were yes. that were hit. But yeah. one of the things that they're saying that they're, they hope the data will prove is that Starliner can dock and undock to the International Space Station. But it's pretty hard to say that your data can verify that and validate that Until when it never it. actually Yeah, you have it. to do it. So there's a lot that NASA still has to work through. There's a lot that Boeing has to work through. The blog post, to me, raised more questions than it did answers. Most notably, why does there appear to be a time limit set on the investigation? How are you going to make a major decision about reflying or not reflying OFT before that investigation is complete? Right. There's a lot of confusion. And, and I'll be interested to see what the justifications either way to reflying or not reflying OFT. I'll be interested to see what the justifications are for that ultimate decision. But it sounds like we'll have that decision in early February right. where we won't have investigative answers until April, it late just, March or April. It just seems like we're going to get multiple takes on what happened here from officials. We'll have to see. <laughs> right. So can we end this on a positive note? Yes. Just give us an outlook on the year. I know you and I are going to get back together oh to tape for in-flight abort next week. Mm-hmm. So what's what's beyond that? What's the big picture item for this year? Yeah, so the big picture items for this year are definitely the commercial crew flights. Yes. I, I think it's a little premature to say whether Boeing or SpaceX will be able will go to, first, right. well, not to go first, mm-hmm. if Boeing will be able to do a crew flight right. this year because yeah. of, of the issues yeah. that, that were uncovered during OFT. Um, I know Boeing made a rather large deal after the issue by saying that they were booked in the first quarter half of the year made it sound like March or April or May. Second quarter. <laughs> with crew flight test, I think that's incredibly unrealistic given the issue that it's lofty. occurred. It's lofty. But regardless of if Boeing is able to recover from this in the year and get to their crew flight test, that's a huge one. And Dragon's first crew flight 
And we have to wait to is, see. Which is upcoming. We have to wait right. to see the, the outcome of the in-flight aboard mm-hmm. before we can really start talking about that. But I know Elon said that all of the first crew flight will is hardware ready late February, early March. Mm-hmm. But that the NASA flight readiness reviews would likely a couple push months. that back yeah. another couple of months. So yeah. if you kind of do the calendar math on that, you're mm-hmm. looking at April, May. Right. And, um, and for Elon to be kind of candid about that, that I would say he's usually kind of lofty in his goals, but he was like, Hey guys, like we're ready, but a couple more months. And I was like, that's unusual for Elon to say. So I would, uh, I, w- I would listen to it. Yeah. So those are the huge ones. Yeah. Uh, on, honestly, you know, NASA keep NASA officially right now continues to say that the first flight of SLS is no earlier than November of mm-hmm. this year. But, um, actually I just published an article late last year on NSF, mm-hmm. NASA Spaceflight, about this, that sources inside that program are saying spring of 2021 of course. Is, is the far yeah. more realistic. I would never attach date. a date to that. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. for, for this rocket. Those are the big, like, human-rated mm-hmm. launch system right. happenings in terms of orbital. Mm-hmm. And have, let me drop in... Yeah. Starship while we're waiting to see yes. what's going on with the development. Boca Chica Gal has been posting some amazing stuff on Mary's you guys. Been yeah. awesome about and it. there's been they're building stuff. Elon was there a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. They're working on different components for Starship. And I think the last time we heard from Elon, they're looking at a hop maybe two to three months from now. From, Something like that. From Boca Chica. Yes. I know that work here sort of paused or as, as far as we know. And a lot of the equipment is being shipped on Go Discovery. Right. Um, and people and yes. some folks have opted to move to Boca Chica. Yes. Yeah. So that's what we know for now. But Kennedy Space Center, however, at 39A, there's a couple of things going on there. Well, they're building the Starship right. launch pad there. inside mm-hmm. the 39A perimeter. Which is cool. And they're still doing that. That, mm-hmm. that has not stopped. That hasn't like, stopped at all. That's, yeah. That was a huge part of, I think, the misconception mm-hmm. that got out there was that all of the Florida Starship stuff had stopped. And that's no. not true. No. They are proceeding forward with building that pad. 39A looks visibly, visibly different. different. Yeah, yes. there's a lot of equipment out there. The flame trench and right. the launch mount starting to take place which for is, Starship, which is cool. So, Chris, how is that going to – like? obviously, there's a lot of things that have to be decided here and a lot of things that need to – Starship development has moved around a ton. Mm-hmm. And let, let's just leave it at that. But do you see them – Kennedy's being built up and Starship's being built at Boca. Do you think once they do the hop in Boca, they'll restart manufacturing here or will they move the Starship – from Boca through the Panama Canal <laughs> to Kennedy Space Center. Oh, uh, you wouldn't have to go through the Panama Canal. Oh, that's Canal, right. You wouldn't right? have to anymore. Um, yeah, you would dri- drive it over now. You, well, you would just put it on a, I mean. You could drive you it. You could use it the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. But I think more, more what you will see is that you'll have two different build sites. Right. And the ones that will launch from here will be built here. The ones yeah. that will launch from Boca will be built right. there. That's and the reason, the reason I brought up the Panama Canal, because the original plan was to build Starship at yes. the port of LA. And there was this huge deal with the city. And then everything sort of vanished and things happen so yeah that's i i remember back in the day thinking about how that would work like moving starship through the panama Panama canal but yeah now they don't have to do that anymore and like chris said we have to see what happens yeah the other major thing that i'm actually looking forward to this year will not be incredibly visible Mm. And it is the completion of the James Webb Space Telescope. Yes, so cannot ahead wait. Ahead of its launch yeah. in yeah. 2021. Yeah, um, we're really getting there now. It's becoming this real thing. Supercluster is planning to go down to the jungle to film it and stuff. And Chris and I, we have to shout out our friend Thaddeus Cesari, who works mm-hmm. on the program. And just everyone on that team is incredible. They're gearing up. I would visit NASA.gov to check out all the updates. There's new press releases every mm-hmm. couple of weeks. They're hitting all their milestones on time. 
and the entire spacecraft is put together. It's it is assembled. Fully assembled. Fully assembled. Yes. I do know that I don't have the specifics on this, but they have to do a run through soon, like a, mm, a power full, full run through, full run through, full mm. power up, and a full unfolding day, of the thing, which is nerve wracking right? because it's yeah. got this. I, I forget exactly how many how many unfolds this thing has to do. It's a but a each many. one <laughs> is what's known as the crit one failure point where right. if one part of the unfold sequence does not work mm-hmm. the mission's over it's terrifying it's terrifying yeah and the whole okay everything about the spacecraft is so complex it's like beyond all of us it's taken yeah. years and billions to build a million manufacturers the top manufacturers oh, yeah. in the world and just a collaboration between the world's best yeah. and it still took yeah. forever it's the most complex thing one of the more complex machines that we've ever designed or built in terms of space telescopes yes. de- de- definitely but you know like to kind of put this into perspective the test space telescope mm. the transiting exoplanet survey satellite um, exoplanet, exoplanet survey, survey yeah. satellite is in the news mm-hmm. right now because nasa is releasing a whole bunch of things it found its first earth-sized planet inside a habitable amazing. zone of a star amazing test did not have to unfold no after it launched it's a pretty relatively small telescope. Oh, it was very yeah. small. The Hubble Space Telescope only had to unfurl its solar arrays and open its aperture door. Mm-hmm. These telescopes that we have launched have not had to undergo these massive, complex, unfolding things because it has to fit inside the payload fairing, right. which is one of the reasons it's launching on the Ariane 5, because mm-hmm. the Ariane 5 has the largest payload fairing mm-hmm. available for this thing. It's also ESA's main contribution to the program also well. while we're here i always see comments on twitter why couldn't spacex launches they cannot launch this james webb space telescope no, it won't fit inside the no that's yeah. why it's flying on the Ariane 5 but tests did launch on a falcon 9 yes it did yeah. yes it did um, so you know this is i think james webb is going to be one of the otter missions hmm. Specifically because most of the time when a satellite launches, like a big satellite like this, all of your, oh God, please work, please work, please work energy goes to the rocket. Right, right. Because that is usually the Uh most dangerous dangerous part part of the mission. And it certainly still will be for James Webb, right? The Ariane 5 is an incredibly remarkable I'm getting and, nervous and, and, right now talking about it. Yeah, like, it's <laughs> is a, is a very reliable It's a reliable vehicle. rocket, yeah. But, you know, there's always that chance that something could go wrong. But when it pops off the top of the Ariane 5 second stage, mm-hmm. that's when the real nervousness starts to hit because now it has to get to its where it's going to be at the Lagrangian point on, around the moon. Right. And then it's got to, then it has to unfold and every unfold is a potential point of mission-ending failure. Right. The, it's amazing. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and here's another thing. We're going to be a lot of alcohol. Yeah. Involved yeah, yeah. In watching that, this that, okay. Here's the thing. And Chris is talking about this as if this is all happening within a day. It's over the course of like, Oh, it's, co- yeah, it's, it's, it's weeks. a, a weeks, it's Yeah. A couple months, maybe process. that whole time. Now the whole scientific community, yeah. the whole astronomy community, this is a turning point for all of us. So we're all going to be nervous, but once everything is good and, and you know, it's positioned, the science and the things that we don't even know that we're going to get are going to blow our minds. And I think that's the key, right? Right. We we know some of the things this telescope is going to be able to do, like directly sample the atmospheres Mm. of exoplanets, potentially find planet nine in our own solar system. Earth two. The the one that Mike Brown (laughs) is trying to find. We know all of the things it can do. Mm -hmm. It's the things that we don't yet know that it will teach us and show us. And, and that the same goes true with the Hubble telescope. That's the exactly that Hubble why it's Hubble. Us mm-hmm. that are amazing. But, you know, the thing 
we're not going to get from James Webb is it's not an optical telescope. No. So we're not going to get those optical images that wow us no. from Hubble. These are going to be images much akin to the Chandra X-ray observatory. The black hole photo. And the black hole photo. Yeah. And and the Spitzer Space Telescope that, that sees in, in the infrared spectrum. I want to say that... Like it's, it's those types of spectrums that we're really okay. going to see. In. So I want to say that when we look at Hubble photos, we see a lot of... A lot of it is color added by us and a lot of oh, images yes. added by us. But what we're going to get from James Webb, the way I would categorize it is visually raw science. We're going to be looking yes. at raw science. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be aesthetically pleasing. But Speak what you're, for yourself. Yeah, well, for, <laughs> I mean, for mainstream audiences, yes. for me and you, obviously, we love that stuff. But aesthetically, you're you're not going to know what you're looking at immediately. Yeah. And, and actually, uh, something I would, I would say in terms of getting your expectations ready for mm. the types of images we right. get from James Webb is go find the original, we can put this in the link, mm -hmm. the original photo of the black hole, not right. the zoomed in one. Right, the original. The zoomed mm. out original, which is, which I did not see originally. Mm -hmm. We only saw but the viral it, photo. It yeah. is breathtaking. Mm -hmm. Like I wish that would have been the viral photo. Yes. Agreed. You can actually, you can see the black hole clearly mm -hmm. in it, yeah. but oh my God, it's, it's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that, that I think what sums it up best is we don't know what we're going to get from James Webb. That's the and most exciting. And that's exciting. Yeah. yeah. So shout out to that team. We're hopefully going to have some of them on the podcast this year to talk about that and lead up. So yeah, Chris and I are going to, anything else? We also mention two, two very important missions uh -huh. too that are, that are robotic. Okay. We have the year European Space Agency's Solar Orbiter mission mm -hmm. that is launching here in early February on an Atlas V rocket. Is it, it the February? What's the date on February fifth? Fifth. Okay. Uh, opening of a 19-day interplanetary launch window because mm. just like the Parker Solar Probe right. a couple of years ago, this one has to intercept Venus a few times to get into its proper orbit. So very short 19-day launch window for that one in February. And then the biggest robotic mission of the year will mm. be the Mars 2020 20. rover from NASA, also launching on a United Launch Alliance mm -hmm. Atlas, the five, Atlas V rocket right. in July. Atlas V has launched some of our more extraordinary science missions. Yes, it so has. It, it's a, and it's a, keeping that tradition. Yeah, keeping that tradition is a proven workhorse. And right now there is a nation, is it international or nationwide competition to name the Mars 2020 nationwide. rover. It's a nationwide contest. School kids. And I know that it's ongoing and we're going to have a name for it soon. Mm -hmm. Do we think it's going to follow like the curiosity and yes, it'll spirit? Yes, it'll follow like, opportunity and, and, yeah. and sojourner. Yeah, yeah, so it has to connect in some way to exploration. Exploration, yeah. Yeah, and okay. there has to be an essay from the kids or the class or whatever, you know, mm. detailing why they think that name is is appropriate. And, you know, this is what's interesting, right? NASA is known for naming their their robotic exploration missions like that mm -hmm. but it's also how we named the space shuttle endeavor that's right let's hope there's some star trek fans in those oh, schools. come on star trek come on fans. star trekkies <laughs> the little ones i, I want the discovery <laughs> yeah discovery fan yeah so Mars. yeah also when you hear from chris and i next after ifa we have to catch up on expanse and a couple other shows that we discussed a few we, months we ago. We've got a few. Yeah. So we'll get in on that podcast yeah. plan yeah. up in January. Hopefully. So yeah. thank you for joining us for the first episode of the year. And Chris and I will be back with you next week. We'll still be at Cape Canaveral. And I think we'll preview <laughs> IFA first, right? Yeah, we'll preview yeah. IFA next week because it'll be before the following. Yes. <laughs>